0: Hello. Now then, I'd like you to listen to a couple of sounds. He was a complete creation of his own making. So I was the very, very first in the whole world. I've got plenty of other peoples. I've got uh, four sisters and two brothers, they've all got plenty of kids, I've got plenty of kids on Jim Will It. So my kids, uh, to me anyway, the best sort of kids, they all go home to their parents. He me to do things for him, he wants me to fondle him. He asked me for oral sex gave him every instrument that he needed in Brooklyn to prey on some extremely damaged individuals. Sir James Savile, OBE, the man who has single-handedly raised more than 30 million pounds for charity. Why have you said in interviews that you don't have emotions? Because it's easier. But the truth is I'm very good at masking them. I'm a rare breed insofar as I'm a single fellow, uh, and, which is why... When people say, "Those five places you've got to live in, aren't they expensive?" I said, "Not as expensive as a wife." Now, the Metropolitan Police say that it will now take the lead in investigating sex abuse allegations against the late Sir Jimmy Savile, as more women come forward claiming to have been assaulted by the television presenter. Who's your best pal, Tony? Oh, no, Desmond. No, he's not. Mm-hmm. No, he's not. Get not me! Because he's a married man. Okay. Yes, you do. No. Yeah. I won't. Not oh, until you <laughs> say me. Now, me, when I stand in front of the table and send Peter's there, he says, you are not coming in. Uh, and I'll say, well, why not? And because you're a villain. And, and he'll show me the debit side. And I'll say, hang about. And I'll show him the credit side and say, does that mean anything? And if he says that means nothing, then I'll threaten to break his fingers. What does she do with the cable, boys? <laughs> and I didn't want to. And he promised me that if I gave him oral sex that he would arrange for me and my friends to go to television center and be on his television show. Hey, hey, hey. We've got it all happening tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody's around, we are going to start with our guests. hope it's been a very good week for you. And here's a very good set to fix it for you. Here we go now with a letter from Lee. Yeah, Lee. Lee. So, I promise. I promise. That you... Give us trouble. Are Are the only one. Are the only one. <laughs> In my life. Well, I was 14. Of course I wanted to go to television centre. I didn't want to give him more attacks. I thought it was disgusting. But I did that. Okay. Gary Glitter was one example. He was particularly horrible and only interested in getting as much sex as he could possibly get from any girl. I'd start with manipulative, then controlling, and very, very clever. It has become a great British institution. Not bad for just another zany DJ, but there's a lot more to cigar-smoking Jimmy than meets the eye. I can remember seeing him having sex with one of the girls from Duncroft in Jimmy dressing room. I was the very, very first in the whole world to run a dance to record. <laughs> you used to be a wrestler, didn't you? Right I still am. I am. I'm feared in every girls' school in this country.
1: Hello and welcome to the Deathcast. I am your host, best selling author Ian Totten, and I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our eighth look into the life and crimes of Jimmy Seville. Before we get into it, as always, I have a few plugs and show notes. If you would like to follow me on social media, that would be Instagram @we, Facebook, just search for either Ian Totten author or The Deathcast. You can also find me on YouTube under Ian these episodes go up there every week when the new episode drops. If you'd like to find any of my books, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash totten hyphen books. That's tinyurl.com backslash totten hyphen books. If you'd like to sign up for the show's mailing list, just go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com, click on the sign up button. While there, please consider making a donation to the show by clicking the donate button. Buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of cigarettes. If you really enjoy the show, please consider going to tinyurl.com backslash DCpatreon and become a Patreon member. Any money that comes in via the Patreon, or the donate button goes into helping offset the production costs of this show. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave a five star review. If you don't enjoy the show, just move along. You don't need to leave a snarky comment or email me to let me know how much you disliked show because huh, as I proved last week I will put you on blast. We did receive a very nice message this week over at corpse Creek from Eric and Eric said hello, I just wanted you to know that I've been listening to the Jimmy Seville portion of your podcast and I would like to say enjoy it very much. I find your research on the subject matter very extensive and enjoyable and I enjoy listening to your banter. Thank you for putting this out. I do appreciate it very much. Well, thank you very much, Eric. I am so happy to hear that you enjoyed the show and that you are enjoying my dive into Jimmy Seville. He has been an all-consuming case to study, and in fact, he was the Use, so to speak, behind my latest novel, Maggie, which is available now at tinyurl.com backslash totten books. All right, now that all the plugs are out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week. Jimmy's mother, Agnes, had just passed away, about a year, give or take, after he had been given an OBE during the Queen's New Year's Honors. As with previous episodes, I am using the timeline for Jimmy's life set out by Dan Davies in his book, In Plain Sight, The Life and Lies of Jimmy Seville. And as such, the reason for that is he gives a fairly concise timeline of events in Jimmy's life, and I'm filling in the various gaps both with Jimmy's book As It Happens, which was his autobiography, as well as with the various reports that were put out by the Metropolitan Police, the BBC, and other organizations that were associated with Seville, who went and did uh, inquiries after his death and allegations of the abuse that he is purported to have done, came out. One of the reasons I'm using Davies' book because people have asked me why I'm relying on it is for the simple fact that Davies adds historical context to various events in Seville's life, which I myself might not know, especially because I am from America and obviously Seville was from the UK, and I am not exactly an expert on British history. Throughout the early part of the 1970s, the IRA waged a fairly bloody war in an attempt to gain independence for Ireland and force the British out. Whether this was the actual IRA or the provisional IRA, I'm a little foggy on. Regardless, this led to the bloody Sunday where British troops killed 14 civilians. long after that, A date known as Bloody Friday occurred where 22 bombs exploded across Ireland in a 74-minute period, the result of which was 130 individuals injured and nine slain. This led an organization known as the Northern Ireland Association of Youth Clubs to reach out to Jimmy Seville. Now, the Northern Ireland Association of Youth Clubs Clubs was an interdenominational organization made up of both men and women. Seville went to Ulster and participated in an eight-mile walk for peace, which was to raise money for a youth center in Belfast. To show you how Seville viewed himself Security forces informed him before he went that it was very likely that he would be a target for IRA snipers and Seville was unconcerned. As always, Seville cracked jokes stating that the chain link fence that had been erected would suffice to keep him safe, not from bullets, but from quote-unquote birds which in Seville parlance is women. The reason I'm bringing this up is for the simple fact that during this period of time, Seville really started to put himself out there as some type of envoy of peace. At some point, although it's hard to pinpoint exactly where Seville is known to have gone over to Israel, and according to Seville's account of the story, the Prime Minister of Israel, as well as their parliament, called on him to come and speak with the Prime Minister. Whether this is true or not is unknown, but it is known that he did in fact meet with some pretty high muckety-mucks in terms of cabinet ministers while in Israel. This has led some to speculate that Seville was working for the British government in some regards when it came to matters such as going into war-torn areas where Great Britain had a stake. Ireland would, of course, be one of those areas where they did and continue to have a major stake. So it's not outside of the realm of possibility that the government may have tapped Seville to do this kind of work. It would not be the first time that they did things of this manner. Uh, There's plenty of historical record to show that Back during, I believe it was World War One, Alistair Crowley worked for British intelligence. Although Crowley, much like Seville, liked to play up the things that it, he had done for his government to make them seem bigger than they actually were. And I only throw this out there as it's another piece in the much larger puzzle of who Jimmy Seville was. At one point, much, much later in our story, Prince Charles sent a letter to Seville along with a small gift for his birthday and simply said, the British people shall never know how what it is you've done for them, but this is go- to go some small way towards the- giving you thanks for that. Again, there are some people who have jumped on this communication as proof that Seville was working for British intelligence in war-torn areas. Again, is it possible? It's very certainly possible, but there's no honest-to-God proof of that. Were it true, it would go a long way towards helping to explain how Jimmy was able to get away with the various crimes he committed throughout the decade as there are slews of spies who worked for the British government who were later ousted as being sexual predators, although unlike Seville, these individuals were actual pedophiles, not an individual who was a sexual predator of the type who just looked for the easiest target. In December of 73, Seville was tapped to head a new campaign on television called Clunk Click, which the clunk was the seatbelt going into the receiver, the click was the sound of it letting you know that it was locked. And it's one of many things that Seville is most famous for. The Clunk Click campaign led to him getting another show on the BBC in May of 1974. This was a show entitled Clunk Click, where Seville said he would interview people from all walks of life. It is... Interesting to note that Seville, when speaking about the program, was quick to point out that quote unquote say what you like about the pop scene, but I have never done anything which I believe would corrupt anyone. Why I point that little bit of information out is again, if you've listened to the seven previous episodes, you know that Seville while very vocal about his sexual escapade, always tried to point out that he had never done anything wrong in regards to that. Again, this is Seville controlling the narrative, almost as though he's getting out in front of things to state this just in case somebody ever comes forward and says, hey, I was... 16 years old, and he used his stardom and power to make me do things that I really wasn't into doing. Just a, another manipulative mover, maneuver on Jimmy's part. While he was doing Clunk Click, Seville also really began his association with the Stoke Mandeville Hospital. At this period in time, he launched an initiative to help build an 8,000-pound luxury recreation lounge in its Spinal Injury Center. Remember the Spinal Injury Center because that is going to become associated with Seville even to this day once we get into the 1980s. Seville latches himself onto this spinal injury center at Stoke Mandeville Hospital. Also throughout this time, Seville was able to renegotiate better contracts with his various programs on the BBC television stations, as well as in their radio stations. While the contracts were being negotiated with regards to the radio programs, the individual who was controlling it, a man by the name of Douglas Muggeridge, decided that he needed to check into the rumors he had heard about Seville. This is the first time that it's documented that someone who Seville was working directly below looked into the various rumors swirling about. Muggeridge had a man working for him by the name of Rodney Collins, and according to Collins, Seville was quote-unquote unlike those who had come over from the old light program or those recruited from the pirate stations. Seville had already made his name, which meant, in his words, that Seville's travels and speakeasy were very much molded around what he believed he could bring to Radio 1. Collins went on to further state that Seville was different from his colleagues in other manners. He stated, quote, I had a home number for absolutely everybody apart from Jimmy Seville. If I wanted him, I either had to leave a message for the producer's office or it was Leeds Infirmary. Seville was his own man. This goes into what I've talked about in other episodes, how Seville never stayed in one place. For very long. He might go to an area for a day or two. But he could just as well show up for a day. And be gone the next day. He was always on the move. Whether it was some type of self-promotion. Or he was going to another hospital to do charity work. He was always moving around. Usually by caravan. So Ridge asks Collins to look into Seville, especially in light of the Paola scandal that we talked about last week, as well as the suicide of Claire McAlpine. So, Collins reached out to the various newspapers where he knew people were working. According to Collins... Reporters told him that they had heard rumors about Seville, although they were not planning on running anything due to Seville's extreme levels of popularity as well as his charity work. And these rumors about Seville would persist over the course of the next 30 to 40 years. There's one anecdote about Seville having finished a show at the BBC in the mid-1980s and taking a young woman from the audience down to his caravan, which was in the car park so he could have his wife with her, while his producer stood outside and an old woman approached the vehicle asking where Seville was. And the man lied and told her that Seville had already left Meanwhile, the van behind is rocking violently, and the older woman is supposed to have given this producer a jar of marmalade and stated that the marmalade was to say thanks for all of the work that Seville was doing for the young people of Great Britain. Obviously, this is more likely than not a joke, as Seville is inside his caravan doing, you know, doing work for the young people, quote-unquote, but it does give you an idea of how much was at least whispered about within the BBC that this type of joke would be floating around in regards to Jimmy. And some of these rumors were no doubt coming from the Dumcroft-approved School for Girls. I believe the name of the town or city it's in is Staines, although I may be wrong on that pronunciation. It's S-T-A-I-N-E-S. If you're interested, you can look it up. I have talked about it in other episodes, how Seville had pretty much attached himself to this particular girls' school, where girls who were seen as being brighter than average but had a criminal history were sent to live. And in fact, one of the girls who gone to Dunkroft when she was an adult is the first person to come forward with stories about the things that Jimmy did. If you listen to the opening of this show, you can hear her talking about how Seville would take Girls for Drives in his Rolls Royce, where it was expected that they would give him oral sex, and in return for this, Seville would bring them to Television Center for tapings of Top the Pops and Clunk Click and other things that he was doing, but he would also bring them Candy and Cigarettes, And most of the girls went along with this because they wanted to go to places like Television Center, but they also didn't want to cause trouble for the rest of the girls. That was the mindset that they had, was that if I don't do these things that he's asking me to do, then he's going to stop coming around. All the other girls are going to be mad at me because he's not going to take us out on these trips any longer. He's also not going to bring us candy and cigarettes again. You can see how he parlayed his power and celebrity to leverage these girls to get what he wanted from them. This is the type of stuff I have been talking about when I say that I don't believe Seville was actually a pedophile. Because it wasn't just teenage girls he did this stuff with. He also did it with full-grown adult women. I'm talking women in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s. He would get some way to get leverage over them to get them to do what it was that he wanted, whether it was helping to pay an electric bill or anything along those lines, giving them candy and cigarettes or promising to introduce them to their favorite musicians. He did all of these things to these young girls and these women, and he used that as a mechanism to get them to sexually gratify him. But he was also out running the roads, and women were willingly coming to him, girls were willingly coming to him, and in Terspersed with all this, he was also visiting prostitutes. Almost in a way like the Green River killer, Gary Ridgway, he had an insatiable sexual appetite. And no matter how much he got, how many times a day he got it, he still wanted more and more. There are multiple stories about Seville going to Duncroft and... Getting a girl alone inside the building where she would take care of him, and then later that day, taking one or more girls out in his Rolls Royce for a drive around the property and having them service him as well. You might be wondering how this was possible, how he could get away with it, and we will be talking about how Seville got away with the things he did at Dunkroft in just a moment when we come back from this commercial.
0: From Ian Totten, best-selling author of The House of Silver Doors, The Blood Gotch Trilogy, and The Throwaway Girls of Olympia, comes Maggie. A book which New York Times best-selling author Keith Elliott Greenberg has called A classic detective story, well-crafted, and a supernatural vortex. Maggie, the name was burned into Lieutenant Carl Jablonski's mind like a brand, and had been since the night of the fire. He doubted he would ever forget that night, or how she had danced in the flames of her burning home. Maggie... Who was she and why did no one in Kaya's crossing seem interested in talking about her or her family? These were questions without answers. Quandaries that drove Carl on as he explored the darkest of the town's secrets, desperate to unravel the knots that tied everything together. Maggie. Carl felt haunted by a visage, even as the local reporter, George Murphy, told them of the blood-soaked history that lay along their path, and the horrors that it held. None of it seemed real, and yet it was. The sacrifices, the screams, the pact with the nameless ones, and the hell that she had endured. Maggie hers was a crime begging to be solved and he and George are the only ones with enough heart to do it the real question is will they survive long enough to do it Maggie available 11, 30, 2021 in paperback and hardcover ebook pre-orders are now available at Amazon.com only from Corpse Creek Publishing have been
1: I'm going to give you a brief overview of Duncroft Approved School for Girls. The school was chartered on October 20th, 1948, at the site of what was the former Duncroft Manor. So, Basically, what it was was a very large estate with multiple buildings on it. And if I'm not mistaken on this, the headmistress, a woman by the name of Margaret Jones, was what they used to refer to as a spinster. She was an unmarried woman who was placed in charge of this school for girls when she had her own home on the grounds. Her, I believe, nephew is a reporter by the name of Marion Jones. Marion Jones was one of the individuals who was looking to break the news of Seville's abuse after his death in a program that was being put together by Newsnight before it was scuttled by the BBC. According to Marion Jones, his aunt enjoyed having Seville there because it Brought the girls' spirits up, but it also brought much needed attention to the school as these girls were basically sent there and then forgotten about. The girls who were in this school, I have seen various things giving their ages as being from 14 to 17, although most reports have it that the girls who were sent there were 15 to 17. Regardless, a year either way. Doesn't matter as far as how who was sent there, they were all basically within the same age group. Marion Jones has gone on to state that his father took a very dim view of Seville being allowed such easy access to these young girls. This, despite the saintly image that Seville had been portraying in the media. And it's easy to understand why you have a 40-something-year-old man going to this school with young, impressionable girls and visibly horse-playing with them. You know, what we used to call when I was in the Navy, playing grab-ass with them. And Seville didn't just do this at Duncroft. He did this all over the place. The inappropriate touching, the pinching on the butt, that kind of stuff. Grabbing the girls in, you know, a very tight type of bear hug, or laying down on top of them and tickling them. All of this in front of other people, and he thought nothing of it. Nor, For the most part, the people who saw this thought nothing of it, because he's, as I've said before, our Jim, gym. Seville had really had almost unfettered access to this girl's school and he would go there he'd bring them gifts he would take the girls out they would do what they did inside of his car and then he would get a group of them and he would bring them to television center where his shows uh, were being produced and if you go online and look up episodes of clunk click you'll see A number of teenage girls dressed kind of like British schoolgirls sitting in the audience mostly on beanbags up on the stage where Seville and his guest of the week were. This was kind of seen as a place of honor. Those are Duncroft girls sitting up on that stage most of the time. These girls were one of what Seville referred to as his teams. This was his Duncroft team. And I know that there are a lot of people out there, especially in Britain, that don't believe that Seville did the things that he has been accused of. I offer to them to do a quick online search. You can find screenshots. You can even find chat logs on old social media websites that predate places like Facebook where groups of girls from Duncroft spoke openly about the type of person that Jimmy really was, calling him a pervert and an old lech and he was only coming around for sex. This isn't really the type of stuff that people would just go and make up In a group, especially when you consider the fact that, unlike the ones that I have dismissed as being bullshit, these girls willingly went along with what Seville wanted from them, even though they didn't want to. I'm sure there were a few in there who were okay with what they were doing, but for the most part, they didn't want to do what Seville wanted them to do but they went along with it for the reasons I've already given, and some of these girls from Duncroft, as I stated, were the first ones to come out against Seville, although a good number of them did not want their names out there associated with the story because, obviously, they felt shame of having been 15, 16 years old and having sex with a 40-something-year-old man in order to get something from him. That's a pretty basic thing that I think most people can understand. You don't want to go back and relive the mistakes you made in your youth, and I know I am not putting any of the blame on these young girls. I'm just stating fact. Because there were girls who... Jimmy propositioned, who did turn him down throughout the years, and he basically just treated them like they didn't exist and would fawn over the ones who would do the things that he wanted them to do. That was another factor that these girls considered when they were deciding whether or not to go along with what he wanted. Am I going to be an exile and not have this you know, supposedly wonderful individual shower me with gifts and attention like he's doing to all these other girls if I say no or am I going to go along with it and get treated as one of the special ones like they are doing. And there are those who will say that this was Seville grooming and it absolutely was. But again, you have to take into the account that he did not just groom teenage girls. He groomed Full grown adults, as well. And Duncroft, so far as I can tell, was a place that Seville was associated with, at least up until the late 1970s. From all records that I've been able to find, the school closed in 1981. Back in Seville's celebrity lifestyle, another run of Clunk Click was commissioned. There is a fairly infamous clip from this second episode on YouTube where Seville has Duncroft girls on the stage, but his guest that week is Gary Glitter. And I'm only going to dive into Glitter for a few moments because someone from... Britain reached out to me this week asking me for documentaries on Glitter. If you've heard the songs Rock and Roll Part 1 and Part 2, you know who Gary Glitter is. He was a very big deal in the 1970s. Uh, They call him the godfather of glam rock. He was also a horrific, admitted, and multiple-time convicted pedophile. He was born on May 8, 1944, as Paul Francis Gadd. In 1999, he was imprisoned for downloading child pornography before being convicted of child sexual abuse and attempted rape in 2006 and 2015. This is coming from Wikipedia. I know a little bit about Glitter, but not a whole lot. After his conviction and jail sentence, he fled Britain on his private yacht and ended up living off the coast of Spain for a period of roughly six months before his real identity was discovered and he was forced to flee again, at which point he went to Cuba and later to Cambodia. Eventually he settled in Vietnam. And this is where Glitter's real problems began. Apparently, he was seen groping a waitress who was underage at a nightclub, at which point he was banned, and other individuals saw him take two young girls into his home. After fleeing his home, Glitter was arrested at an airport, and it later came to light that at least six Girls and women ages 11 to 23 claimed that they had had sex with Glitter. It's interesting to note that Glitter faced the possibility of being executed in Vietnam for having sex with underage girls, something I personally wish they had gone ahead and gone through with, but Glitter paid the girls' families off, and they they went before the court and begged for clemency. Eventually, he went before a judge facing charges on abuse of a girl aged 10 and another aged 11, for which he got three years in print prison. Glitter tried to state that he never did anything wrong and that he had, in fact, been framed by the British media after being released Glitter tried to claim that he had never had sex with anyone who was under the age of 18 and at least not willingly so. When Glitter was released from prison, he expressed interest into going to either Hong Kong or Singapore. It should be noted that both of these countries are known for having a fairly active underage sex trade. Glitter was deported back to Britain where he was given a foreign travel order which would basically ban him from leaving the country. After being back in Britain, Glitter was brought up again on charges of having raped young girls between ages of 13 and 14. He was also charged with historic sex abuse. Uh, against three girls between 1975 and 1980. Glitter was sentenced to 16 years in prison on February 27, 2015, and as of now, he is still incarcerated. The reason I went through all of that, other than someone asked me a question about Gary Glitter, was this very... Infamous exchange between him on Clunk click, where Seville stated, "quote Do young ladies go to get go to great lengths to get next to you, as it were?" Glitter replies, "quote Yeah, and I go to great lengths to get next to them." Then he looks around into the darkened audience and says. I'm having a look around the audience now to see if there's anyone I fancy. To which Seville, after laughing, states, We always line our artist up. One of the girls from Duncroft has gone on the record stating that after this episode of Clunk Click was recorded, she ended up having a sexual encounter with glitter that was not altogether consensual. According to the man who produced Clunk Click, an individual by the name of Roger Ordish, although he had heard rumors that Seville was quote-unquote interested in young females, he never saw nor heard anything to make him think that he was taking advantage of underage girls. Jimmy was getting a lot of press coverage at this time more than he had been in previous years. And a number of critics pressed him on why he was such a publicity hound, to which Seville stated that it was basically to ensure that the charities that he was championing might get some windfall from all of the publicity he was getting. And that's one of the... Tools that Seville used throughout the years. He tried to put on this benign air of, I'm not really publicity-seeking for myself. It's just that I'm a very famous individual, and these kids are holding out hope that I'll be able to raise money for them. So I'm really putting myself out there in the hopes that people will hear my message and donate to these charities. Another example of how popular Seville was becoming and how entrenched within the establishment he was at this time is during the lead up to the general elections of 1974, he actually appeared in campaign broadcasts, not for a singular party, but for both parties. That would be the conservatives and the liberals. And when asked why he was doing these ads, Seville basically stated that he was doing it and he wasn't endorsing one candidate over another simply to get the young people out and voting, which is very similar to what we have in this day and age, although at this period of time, Seville never publicly endorsed any candidates, he would later endorse certain candidates, and if I'm not mistaken, they were conservative candidates. We are going to leave off our story for next week, because the next chapter in Jimmy Saville's life is what really pushes him from superstardom into megastardom. That is, of course, Jim will fix it. And that is going to take some time to discuss, more than, you know, the hour per episode that I generally do, and I don't want to leave anything out concerning that. So, we will begin talking next week about Jim, and Jim will fix it, and what that did not only to him, but also to the BBC. So, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Life and Crimes of Jimmy Seville. Again, please don't forget to subscribe, like, and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast network. If you want to find any of my books, they can be found at tinyurl.com backslash totten-books if you are interested in becoming a Patreon member of the show. You can go to tinyurl.com backslash dc Patreon. Until next week, the Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid.